Welcome to Shelter in Place, a podcast about finding daily sanity in a world that feels increasingly insane. Coming to you from Oakland, California, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. 20 years ago, when I had my very first job coaching cross-country and track, a mentor of mine gave me the best coaching advice I'd ever received. That mentor was Kirk Elias, the distance coach at the University of Nevada, Reno, who's still a friend today. Over dinner at a sushi chain, I confessed to Kirk that though I was excited to be coaching, I had no idea what I was doing. I'd been a collegiate athlete myself, but I had little understanding of training theory and exercise physiology. Without hesitating, Kirk grabbed a napkin and started writing. He drew two lines on the napkin an x-axis, and a y-axis. This, he said, is the supercompensation curve. If you understand this, then you'll have the foundation to become a great coach. The y-axis is your fitness level, he said, pointing to the vertical line. The x-axis is time. Let's imagine for the sake of the example that at the beginning of the cross-country season, your athlete's fitness level starts at zero. I nodded. This was not all that far-fetched. I certainly had plenty of athletes who had not run a step over the summer. This is your first hard workout. He put an X on the graph at zero. What do you think happens to that athlete's fitness level after that first hard workout? I've probably shown the supercompensation curve to every athlete I've ever coached, and at this point, almost everyone answers the way I did. They say that when you do the hard workout, your fitness level goes up. We all know that to get better at something, we have to work at it. Even non-runners understand this. Sitting on the couch and watching TV does not make you more fit. It takes work to get better, which of course is true. But in this case, that answer is wrong. When you do that hard workout, your fitness level does not go up. Not initially. It goes down. Your body suffers from that high-intensity work. You get little tears in your muscle fibers. Your central nervous system gets fatigued. It's what happens immediately after that makes all of the difference. After that initial dip in fitness, your body needs time to recover for a couple of days, say by way of some easier runs or maybe even a day off. Only then does your central nervous system adapt and those torn muscle fibers rebuild to become stronger. If you get the proper recovery, your body will not only recover to your original pre-workout fitness level, but it will supercompensate and be slightly fitter than when you started. In an ideal world, that cycle repeats over and over again over time. You do a hard workout, you recover, and your body supercompensates, at which point you do the next hard workout. Gaining fitness is not a straight upward line, but a roller coaster of peaks and valleys that climb over time. There are things that get in the way of supercompensation, of course. If you do the next hard workout too soon, before you have time to recover, your fitness level will decline until your body stops that destructive process, likely by getting sick or injured. The opposite is also true. If you do the hard workout and then do nothing for a week, your fitness level will also go down. Drinking too much alcohol, not getting enough sleep, being super stressed out, or basically anything that is not great for your body in the first place will also get in the way of supercompensation. 
I've coached for nearly 20 years, and I use that super compensation curve over and over again. It's a great way to show athletes that recovery is just as important as the hard workouts. In a sport that is all about coping with suffering, you don't usually have to convince runners that they need to do the hard work. It's the recovery you have to talk them into, so they don't work themselves into an injury. But lately I've been thinking about what comes before that recovery, that very hard and necessary work of getting on the track and pushing your limits. Sometimes it's downright painful, especially if you're out of shape. I always have to assure new runners that it will get better, a lot better, if they keep at it. Many of them quit before they ever get to experience that payoff. My conversation today is with someone who knows a lot about supercompensation, not in running, but in life. He spent his life doing the hard, painful work of transformation, work that initially left him a little ragged. But he's also figured out how to recover, how to supercompensate, how to end up at a better place than where he started. It's good to be here. I'd like to begin by introducing myself, and I like to do that traditionally. So, Yate, Mark Charles Yenish, yeah. Sinbake Dinanishle, Dr. Higlini Bashachin, Sinbake Dinan Dashache, Dr. Chitni Dashnella. In our Navajo culture, when we introduce ourselves, we always give our four clans. My mother is American of Dutch heritage, and so I say Sinbake Dina. Loosely translated, that means I'm from the Wooden Shoe people. My second clan, my father's mother, is Toihiglini, which is the waters that flow together. My third clan, my mother's father, is also Sinbakedina. And then my fourth clan, my father's father, is Toluchitni, and that's the Bitterwater clan. It's one of the original clans of our Navajo people. I'm speaking to you today from Washington, D.C., the traditional home of the Piscataway, the people indigenous to these lands long before Columbus got lost at sea. And this was the people that were removed from these lands so that the District of Columbia, the state of Maryland, the state of Virginia could be established. And I like to acknowledge the people whose land I'm on, no matter where I am around the country. And so it's an honor today to speak to you from the land of the Piscataway. I should stop here and say that Mark Charles isn't just an interesting guy, though he certainly is that. He's an independent candidate running for president of the United States in 2020. Our country is so deeply entrenched in our two-party system that it's possible you haven't heard of him yet. We talked about that system, and you'll hear that later in our conversation. But no matter how you vote in November, Mark is someone you should know about. Not just because he's running for president, but because he's a fascinating, thoughtful person whose life trajectory looks a lot like the graph that Kirk drew on that napkin. He hasn't been afraid to put himself in situations that are really uncomfortable and to hang in there until he was able to recover in a way that ultimately made him better. So I grew up in the area of New Mexico in a border town to the Navajo Reservation, the Navajo Nation, a place called Gallup, New Mexico. Over a hundred years ago, the Christian Reformed Church of North America established a mission to the Navajo people in the Southwest, and they started a boarding school. Uh, the boarding school has a very long, unjust history in our nation. Basically, it's a way to forcibly assimilate uh, Native peoples into Western European American culture. So children were taken from their homes, put into these military-style boarding schools. They were punished for speaking their languages, punished for practicing their culture. The stories I've heard of abuse, 
emotional, physical, mental, sexual that happen in these boarding schools is gut wrenching. And the last of them didn't even end up closing until the 1970s and 80s. And so the Christian Reformed Church ran such a boarding school in the Southwest. And my grandparents actually worked as translators for some of the missionaries uh, to the Navajo people. And my mother came to that area as a missionary nurse. And my father was there because his parents were, were working with the missionaries at that mission compound. And that's where they met. Biracial marriage didn't even become legal in this country until the 1960s. And so they were married shortly after that. And there were a number of couples like that in the Southwest, Dutch American women who were marrying some of the Navajo men who lived there. And uh, some of them actually called us Dutchahoes, which is, you know, <laughs> a kind of a mixture of the two. So I grew up in that area and I was attending Rehoboth what had been a boarding school during the years while it was transitioning to becoming a, a day school. And then after school, I attended UCLA and graduated with my uh, bachelor's in history. And I met my wife at UCLA. We got married in Los Angeles and then moved back down to New Mexico. And while I was there, I was working in the church and I was leading a small group ministry near Gallup at this Rehoboth Mission Compound where I'd grown up. And early 2000, 2001 was called to pastor a church in Denver, Colorado called the Christian Indian Center. And that's when we really began kind of engaging with the history of the church and indigenous peoples. We became involved with a group called the World Christian Gathering on Indigenous Peoples, a group of indigenous Christian leaders from around the world who were talking about how they were beginning to decolonize their faith, asking questions, what did it mean to be Christian, follow this teacher named Jesus, but still be of the, the cultures, the tribes, the, the heritage that we came from. The challenge with most indigenous peoples around the world is we were what I like to call colonized by the gospel. Missionaries came in and they brought this message of Jesus, but they often came in and said, well, to, to be a Christian, you have to first become American or European. You have to speak English. You have to be educated in our schools. And this happened all over the world. And so as indigenous peoples, we were meeting together, talking about how do we begin to decolonize our faith? and actually be able to contextualize our worship so that we could worship creator and creator's son Jesus through the context of our own culture, our language, our understanding of what's sacred. And so after being there and engaging with that dialogue for two years, my wife and I decided we need to move back to the Navajo Nation because I had been born in a border town, because English was taught and spoken in my home. I wasn't raised with my cultural understanding of what it meant to be Navajo. I realized if I really want to engage this conversation, I had to be back among my people and even on our reservation. And so we moved back. This is 2003, early 2004. And for three years, we lived in a very remote section of our reservation. We were six miles off the nearest paved road on a dirt road. We lived in a one-room hogan, had no running water, no electricity. Our neighbors were rug weavers and shepherds, completely off the grid out in the middle of nowhere. I want to make sure that you caught that. Mark moved back to the reservation and lived there for 11 years. For three of those years, he was off the grid. We aren't just talking about some one-week experiment. 
He was in it for the long haul. He learned his people's language, which I'm told is not an easy thing. That language was used in radio transmissions during World War II because it is so complicated that it was almost impossible to decode. He experienced the Navajo Nation from the inside. We moved there prepared to live off the grid. We moved there prepared to haul our water, live by candlelight, cook by open fire, our camp stove, use an outhouse, all the things that goes with life off in that section of the reservation. What caught us by surprise once we moved there was how marginalized we felt. And once we began to understand how marginalized the entire community was. One of the first observations we made, probably within the first six months of living there, is that by and large, living on an Indian reservation in the middle of this country, the only non-natives that you ever see are people who come to take your picture, are people who come to give you charity. And oftentimes they're one and the same. And almost nobody comes to just build a relationship and to get to know you as a person. As we were experiencing that, as we were witnessing that, and as I was looking at the historical trauma of my people, I was understanding more of the history of what has happened to our people. I was experiencing this very intense marginalization and seeing the fruit of this cultural genocide and learning some more about the actual genocide through this doctrine of discovery. I could feel myself becoming more and more angry. And I was trying to process through these emotions I was feeling. I was feeling insecure, I was feeling angry. And every time I would talk with my non-native friends, I could feel this anger kind of welling up in me. And soon I had to hang up the phone so I wouldn't start screaming at them. So I, I trained myself how to temper those emotions, almost like I had read it in the newspaper, so I could be disconnected from it emotionally. Now that allowed me to stay in the dialogue longer, but it wasn't long until my friends would begin having emotion welling up in them. They would become defensive. They would become angry. That wasn't my people who did that. My family didn't do that to you. And soon they would drop out of the conversation. And I was looking for a way to have an honest dialogue about the history, about what happened, that allowed me to adequately express what I was feeling, but also didn't send myself or other people running from the conversation because they didn't want to deal with it. And one day I was writing a letter. And in this letter I wrote to them, I said, being Native American and living on a reservation in the middle of our country, it feels like our Native communities are this old grandmother who has a very large and a very beautiful house. And years ago, some people came into our house and they locked us upstairs in the bedroom. Today, our house is full of people. They're sitting on our furniture, they're eating our food, they're having a party inside our house. Now, they've since come upstairs and they've unlocked the door to the bedroom, but it's much later and we're tired, we're old, we're weak, we're sick, so we can't or we don't come out. But the thing that hurts us the most, that causes us the most pain, is that virtually nobody from this party ever comes upstairs, seeks out the grandmother in the bedroom, sits down next to her on the bed, takes her hand, and simply says, thank you. Thank you for letting us be in your house. Those words were no sooner off my pen and onto the paper when I'm like, that's it. That's exactly what I'm feeling. And I began sharing that with members of my community, people who lived around me. And the feedback I was getting was, you know, I've lived here all my life. I've struggled. People tell me to articulate how it feels. And you're hitting the nail on the head. I would share that, that with 
my non-native friends off the reservation. And now rather than getting angry or upset and hanging up the phone, they would come back and say, how do we say thank you? How does my family, my community, my church, my city, my state, my nation express gratitude to the indigenous hosts of Turtle Island? See, now we're having a very different conversation. Now, instead of discussing victim versus oppressor, now we're having a dialogue, which is what I think is the heart of the conversation we need to have, which is this reversal of roles, which is this nation, the United States of America, which likes to call itself a nation of immigrants. Shelter in Place is grateful to be sponsored by Delta Wines, the refined daily drinker with a social good built in. These California wines are fresh and approachable, perfect for casual dinners at home, which is why we keep several in our fridge at all times. Plus, for every $15 bottle you buy, Delta donates $1 to fighting climate change. Buy online at winesforchange.com and use the code SHELTER to get 10% off. Before I interviewed Mark, I had another interview with a Navajo artist named Elmer Yazi. I'll be sharing that conversation in an upcoming episode. Elmer knows Mark. He was one of his high school teachers. And he said that he loves Mark, but that Mark would say some things that were hard to hear. And also that he was worth listening to. And I found this to be absolutely true. It was hard to hear about the mistakes our country has made, some of them deadly. It was a little bit like hearing that your favorite uncle, the fun one who always got you the cool gifts for your birthday, was responsible for something terrible. Something that maybe you'd heard about but had hoped wasn't true. You still love the uncle after learning the truth, but it changes things. The relationship becomes infinitely more complicated. As I listened to Mark, I kept thinking about something Moki Musao said to me in our conversation last week. That was episode 68, if you missed it. Moki said that when you hear hard things that challenge your assumptions, that push against your beliefs, you don't have to decide right away whether or not you believe them. Just entertain the possibility that what the other person is saying might be true. You can look into it later. Decide for yourself whether or not you'll accept or reject this new information. But even just the act of listening and entertaining the possibility changes you. It makes you more compassionate and willing to listen to the people around you, especially those you disagree with. And so I'm going to urge you to do that now as you listen to Mark. You don't have to decide now whether or not you agree with him, but entertain the possibility that what he's saying might be true. When we say we're a nation of immigrants, we disregard two key populations. We disregard native peoples who are indigenous to these lands, and we disregard African people who were kidnapped and brought here and then enslaved in these lands. Calling ourselves a nation of immigrants disregards these two key demographics of people. We have this majority white population, undocumented immigrants, people who've never asked for, nor have they ever been given permission to be here, and they run around acting like they own the place. Meanwhile, we have six million indigenous people, and we're being treated like unwanted guests in someone else's house. And this image of this grandmother in the house 
switches that. It gets us to the heart of this reversal of roles. What does it mean for the uninvited guests to say thank you, meaning and acknowledging that they are guests in someone else's house? And what does it mean for the indigenous peoples to hear these words and to be stepping more fully into our role as the host of these lands? This was almost 20 years ago that I began wrestling with some of these issues. And that has been at the center of my work ever since, is how do I engage this conversation that's honest, that's accurate, that's truthful, that doesn't gloss things over, but engages in constructive and healing dialogue. There's a, an Aboriginal leader, his name is George Erasmus. He's from the Diné people up in Canada. And he says that where common memory is lacking, where people do not share in the same past, there can be no real community. If you want to build community, he said, you have to start by creating common memory. I love that quote because I think it gets to the heart of our nation's problem with race, which is we do not have a common memory. We have a white majority that remembers this mythological history of discovery and expansion, opportunities and exceptionalism. And we have communities of color, BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, people of color, who have the very lived experience of stolen lands and broken treaties, of slavery and Jim Crow laws, of boarding schools and Indian massacres, of internment camps and segregation and families being ripped apart at our borders. And there's no common memory and there's no point in our nation's history where you can look back and say there was healthy community across racial lines. That does not exist in our nation. And so my work is about how do we tell these stories? How do we create this common memory? Not first and foremost for the point of shaming people or victimizing people or condemning people, but for the sake of building this common memory so that for the very first time, we might have a healthier community. As we're in this moment right now where racism is in the forefront of everybody's mind, could you talk about what your personal response has been the last few weeks, both internally and, and what the world sees? Well, on one hand, what, what happened these past few weeks has not taken me by surprise. I've been writing about, speaking about, talking about the doctrine of discovery for over a decade now. The doctrine of discovery, it's a series of papal bulls or edicts of the Catholic Church. It's essentially the church in Europe saying to the nations of Europe, wherever you go, whatever land you find not ruled by white European Christian rulers, those people are subhuman and their land is yours to take. This is the doctrine that literally allowed European nations to go into Africa, colonize the continent and enslave the people because they didn't believe they were human. It's the same doctrine that let Columbus, who was lost at sea, land in this new world, which was already occupied by millions and claimed to have discovered it. You can't discover lands already inhabited. That's called stealing. The fact that we refer to Columbus as the discoverer of America reveals the implicit racial bias of the nations, which is that native peoples, people of color, are not fully human. Now that doctrine gets embedded into the foundations of our nation. So our Declaration of Independence, which boldly declares, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. 30 lines later, in the same declaration, it refers to natives as merciless Indian savages. The Constitution, which begins with the words, we the people, which sounds inclusive, 
But Article 1, Section 2, the section that determines who is and who is not a part of the union, who is and who is not protected by this constitution, first of all, it never mentions women. Second, it specifically excludes natives. And third, it counts Africans as three-fifths of a person. Literally, that leaves white men. See, we don't think about this near often enough. The purpose of our constitution, the reason it was written, was not to give freedom and equality and justice to all. It was to protect the interests of white landowning men. We've never wrestled with that. And so these are the challenges that we need to wrestle with and face as a nation. The 13th Amendment, even in the past few weeks, in the past few days, in response to what I would call the institutional lynching of George Floyd, both President Trump and Vice President Biden have referred to the legacy of Abraham Lincoln and the great good that he did for our country. Well, at the Lincoln Memorial, there's a small museum at the base of it. In that museum, there's a plaque on the wall with different quotes and sayings of Lincoln about his legacy. One plaque says, my primary object in this struggle, wrote Abraham Lincoln, is not to save or destroy slavery, is to preserve the union. And if I could save the union without freeing a single slave, I would do it. If I could save the union by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. There's a plaque hanging at the Lincoln Memorial that literally says, according to Abraham Lincoln, black lives don't matter. If you read the Lincoln-Douglas debates, Abraham Lincoln was a blatant white supremacist. If you read his inaugural address, you will learn that he had no intention of freeing the slaves in the states where slavery already existed. And if you read the 13th Amendment, you will find it doesn't actually abolish slavery. What it says is neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party has been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place under their jurisdiction. The 13th Amendment doesn't abolish slavery. It redefines and codifies it under the jurisdiction of the criminal justice system. And the criminal justice system is the institution that very publicly lynched a young black man named George Floyd couple weeks ago. This is the challenge we face as a nation. We have white supremacy written into our foundations. If you listen to the rhetoric of the Democrats and Joe Biden, they are trying with all their might to pin this injustice on the Republicans and President Trump. Now, President Trump is absolutely a disaster, and he's not handling this well whatsoever but he is not the root of the problem here. The root of the problem is our Constitution. The root of the problem is our 13th Amendment. Most people think the United States of America is racist and sexist and white supremacist in spite of our foundations. No, we are racist and sexist and white supremacist because of our foundations. These are the places where we have to address it. One of the things I've even done in the past weeks is I've been to the Lincoln Memorial to protest. I've stood there and declared Black Lives Matter against what Abraham Lincoln advocated for, which is Black Lives Didn't Matter. 
The other day when there was a massive protest here in DC, I was a part of that protest. I marched with them. But then I went and held my sign up in front of the National Archives, which is where the Constitution rests. This is the challenge that we don't want to have as a nation. We have right now, there's a lot of debate on how do we reform our criminal justice system? How do we reform our policing? And I am the only candidate who is advocating right now that any sort of reform in our criminal justice system has to begin with us actually abolishing slavery. Donald Trump is, is blaming the protesters. Joe Biden is blaming Donald Trump. And I'm the only candidate who's saying we have to deal with this at the foundational level. We have to deal with this in our constitution. And so these are the challenges that we're facing. And so a year ago, May 28th of 2019, I launched my campaign by sharing on my social media a nine-minute announcement video that goes in depth into this history, into our foundations, into the white supremacy, the racism, and the sexism embedded into our constitution, our declaration of independence, and our Supreme Court case law. I lay out the need for common memory. I lay out my vision for a national dialogue on race, gender, and class, something I would put on par with the truth and the reconciliation commissions that happened in South Africa, in Rwanda, and in Canada. I wouldn't call ours truth and reconciliation, though, because reconciliation implies there was a previous harmony, which is inaccurate. I would use the term truth and conciliation because conciliation is merely the mediation of a dispute. If reconciliation perpetuates the myth, we used to be great, now we're not, conciliation demands we have a much more honest starting point. They both end in a better relationship. It's just one affirms the myth, the other affirms what actually happened. Mark, do you think part of the root of the problem is also that, I mean, I just see a real reluctance to admit all of the ways that our nation has done things wrong, but like the Abraham Lincoln thing it was a bit of a heartbreak to realize this guy that we have all held up as a hero. I mean, maybe he still had some great qualities, but he was responsible for some pretty terrible things too. And if I'm feeling that sort of heartbreak over that realization, then I just imagine some of the people I know, especially from older generations who are fiercely patriotic and don't want to say anything bad about our country's history. Do you, do you think that part of the issue is there's just a, a real reluctance to own up to what actually happened? And, and like, what do people do with that? What do, for people who really have a hard time even accepting that this person that they held up as a hero is not the hero that they thought he was. Yeah. So the whole thing with Abraham Lincoln, in 1862, he signed a bill called the Pacific Railway Act and the Homestead Act. The Homestead Act provided 160 acres for any family that went west and homesteaded for five years. And the Pacific Railway Act provided the land and the resource to complete the Transcontinental Railway. Within two and a half years of signing that bill, Abraham Lincoln, after the hanging of the Dakota 38, the nullifying of the treaties of the tribes in Minnesota and the removal of the tribes in Minnesota, after the Sand Creek Massacre and the removal of the Arapaho and Cheyenne from Colorado, Wyoming, and after the long walk of the Navajo and the Mescalero Apache in the Southwest, Abraham Lincoln had literally ethnically cleansed 
all the natives from the states of Minnesota, Colorado, Wyoming, and New Mexico, making way for the three primary routes of the Transcontinental Railway. Meaning not only was he a blatant white supremacist, but he was actually one of the most genocidal presidents in the history of our nation. In his final State of the Union, President Obama was addressing the divisiveness that he experienced throughout his entire eight years in office. And he was talking about the need for our nation to have what he called a new politics. And in his speech, he quoted the Constitution. He said, we the people. Our Constitution begins with these three simple words, all the people. Now, that sounds beautiful, and he got a lot of applause for that line. But as I sat in my house and listened to him speak, I asked myself, when? When did we decide this? The founding fathers did not believe that we the people means all the people. Abraham Lincoln did not believe we the people meant all the people. As good as the civil rights movement was, it did not get us to we the people meaning all the people. Donald Trump does not believe that we the people means all the people. The challenge is, is that both the implicit and the explicit bias of our foundations is that we the people is a very narrowly defined term, primarily of white landowning men. One of the biggest challenges we have as Americans and I, I state this in our book, is that we've never lost a war that mattered. We've never given up land. We've never had to surrender. We've never had a military change. We've never been disarmed. We've never had a regime change. We have won basically every major and even minor war that we've ever fought. Technically, the Korean War hasn't ended yet, and we pulled out of Vietnam, but we didn't lose any land in that. Now, when you understand that history is written by the victors, what this means is that for 250 years, we have literally written our own history. One of the questions I love to ask people when I lecture is, had Nazi Germany won World War II, how would they have recorded Adolf Hitler? Well, he's the greatest fear ever. How would they have recorded the Holocaust? Well, we have Holocaust deniers today. Imagine if Germany had won the war. What Holocaust? There was no Holocaust. This is exactly how we treat Abraham Lincoln and how we record the genocide of Native peoples. Not because we're more just than Nazi Germany. It's just that we won the war. We won the Indian Wars. In 1863, one of Lincoln's generals, General Carleton, gave an order to his army captain, specifically to Kit Carson, telling him to go through the New Mexico territory and basically kill everybody, to kill all the Navajos, to round us up and to bring us down to Bosquedondo, which is an Indian reservation that Abraham Lincoln helped establish in early 1864. So Kit Carson went through the Southwest, enacting what was called a scorched earth campaign. He burned our houses, he destroyed our crops, he killed our animals and livestock. 
He chased our people throughout the Southwest, rounded up 10,000, the majority of our people, and forcibly marched us down to Bosque Redondo. Hundreds of our people died of exposure and starvation along this march. And imprisoned in this death camp, nearly a quarter of our people died while they were there. This is what Abraham Lincoln did because he was trying to clear the area in the Southwest so that one of the routes of the Pacific Railway could go through it. See, this is the challenge is we don't know what to do with this history. The, the nation, as it was moving West, was literally committing genocide and ethnic cleansing of native peoples. And the belief was that we were savages and that this nation had a manifest destiny, we don't know what to do with this history. It's so abhorrent. It's so unjust. It's so vile, downright evil. And yet these are the things we celebrate. You know, even now, right now, while our nation is at this hyper-awareness of systemic white supremacy and racism, and we're calling it out in monuments and in institutions and we're standing up and screaming at Black Lives Matter, which we need to do and is absolutely true. But the first week of July, things are going to begin to die down. And people are going to begin to come together. People are going to take the day off on the 4th of July and they're going to roast hot dogs and cook food outside and call family and friends together. And this nation's going to unify while it watches fireworks and celebrates the 4th of July, which is celebrating essentially our Declaration of Independence, which is a document that refers to Native Americans as merciless Indian savages. So we're gonna unify as a nation, even attempt to heal from what's happening now by celebrating a document that calls another group of people savages. This is what's wrong. Our country doesn't know what to do with this. This is why we have to create this common memory. This is why we have to teach an accurate history. This is why we have such poor community in this country. There are three groups of people specifically excluded from our constitution. Natives are excluded, referred to as savages. African people are counted as three-fifths, and slavery is never abolished. And if you read the entire Constitution from the, the preamble to the 27th Amendment, you will find that there's not a single female pronoun in the entire Constitution. And these are the three groups, the three demographics that experience the most direct oppression and marginalization and exclusion from this country. And this is why I am calling for a national dialogue on race, gender, and class. This is why I'm pleading with our nation to create a common memory. Is because without doing these things, we are never going to have a healthy community. It's going to be dysfunctional, and it's going to be abusive and oppressive, and we're not going to know how to come together as a nation. And so this is why I'm running for president. I am trying to teach this history 
I am trying to create this common memory. On one hand, you could say I'm calling the question, which is what you would do in a board meeting when an issue has been debated for an extended period of time. And finally, someone will say, I call the question, meaning at the next breaking point, we need to take a vote on this and just decide what we want to do. This is what my campaign is. I am calling the question. Do we want to be a nation where we the people truly means all the people? If we don't, then that's fine. We're doing great. Let things keep going as the status quo says. But if we do, then we have to work on our foundations. We have to change things at a foundational level. We have to change what we celebrate. We have to change what we hold our laws with. We have to change our foundations because that's where the problem lies. I wonder if we could just talk about the elephant in the, well, not the literal room, but the phone call maybe. And that is that we are essentially a two-party system. I, for many years, long before I met you, have desperately wanted there to be another option besides this two-party system. But I also find myself feeling pretty cynical about that and wondering, is it even possible for you to become president of our nation. Like, would you mind just speaking to that? Yeah. I'm running as an independent. And one of the reasons I'm running as an independent is because I realized when I studied our nation's political history, that if I ran within one of the two parties, I would never be nominated. The two party system, the Democrats and the Republicans, they reduce every debate down to a single binary and then they scream at each other over it. Now, in the two-party system, one of the ways that they decide presidential politics is through the primary system. And they start with campaigning in Iowa and New Hampshire. Now, Iowa is the sixth widest state in the country. New Hampshire is the fourth. Iowa has the highest rate of private land of any state in the union. And New Hampshire has the highest rate of land ownership. Iowa has a state law requiring them to be the first caucus state, and New Hampshire has a state law requiring them to be the first primary state. Because the two parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, adhere to those laws, they essentially, literally allow white landowning men to be the gatekeepers for presidential politics. Donald Trump won the election by promising to make America great again. Hillary Clinton, not to be outdone, responded by saying America's great already. At the Democratic National Convention, President Obama was brought into the fray, and he said America's already pretty great. And Cory Booker, who ran for president this year and was a rising star back in 2016, he was on the main stage endorsing Hillary Clinton. And in his remarks, he acknowledged that our Constitution excludes women. He acknowledges that our Constitution excludes natives. And he acknowledges the three-fifths compromise. Now, most candidates don't acknowledge any of these things at that level. And he was very courageous to acknowledge all three. But he saved his political ambitions by telling the DNC at the end of his remarks that these things do not detract from our nation's greatness. In the general debates, Hillary Clinton expanded on her remarks and she said, America is great because America is good. And Donald Trump stopped. He turned to her, he looked at her and he said, I agree with her. I agree with everything she just said. So if Donald Trump wants to make America great again and the Democrats believe America is already great, then they both agree our past, our history, our foundations are great. They disagreed if we were great in 2016. Donald said no and Hillary said yes. 
see, we were duped. We were told that that election was about racism versus anti-racism and equality versus inequality. It wasn't. What we were deciding in the 2016 was we want Donald to make America explicitly white supremacist, racist, and sexist again, or did we want Hillary Clinton to work to keep our white supremacy and racism implicit? Since 1823, the doctrine of discovery has been embedded into the Supreme Court case law, making it the legal precedent for land titles. This doctrine of discovery that dehumanizes natives. 1823 is the first time it was referenced by the Supreme Court. It was referenced as recently as 2005. I have a TEDx talk about the 2005 case. It's called We the People, the Three Most Misunderstood Words in U.S. History. In this TEDx talk, I walk through that case, the reasoning behind the case, the history behind the case, and I identify that this is one of the most white supremacist Supreme Court opinions written in my lifetime. In the first footnote of the case, it references the doctrine of discovery. It builds an argument essentially calling us savages, and it concludes that we no longer have sovereign right over our land based on these arguments. And that opinion was written by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. This is the challenge. When your land titles, which is the foundation of our capitalistic system, is rooted in a dehumanizing doctrine of discovery, this makes white supremacy a bipartisan value. And this is why our nation, Democrat or Republican, is not going to change it. And this is why I'm running for president, not as a Democrat or Republican, but as an independent. Yes, I will have a smaller platform. Yes, I will raise less money. Yes, I wasn't able to be in the primary debates but it's now June of 2020 and I'm still in the race. We're having a hard time getting the press to notice us. We're having a hard time engaging this more publicly, but I'm still here and we're still engaging this in this campaign. The thing I'm, I'm challenging our people to do, our nation to do, is to not allow this two-party system, which is set up to perpetuate the system, to not let it define our politics. President Trump says he's very concerned about voter fraud through mail-in balloting. He's not afraid of voter fraud. He's afraid that more people are going to vote. Democrats come after me all the time, accusing me of trying to steal the election from Joe Biden and give it to Donald Trump. Why? They're afraid of third party and independent candidates. Why? Because the more viable candidates are out there, the less votes Joe Biden's going to get. The reason our nation has a very simplistic two-party system is because white landowning men are terrified of true democracy. And that's especially true as that demographic is becoming smaller and smaller, and it's not yet a minority, but it soon will be. And so it's looking for ways to keep its advantage in there and limiting voting and reducing the number of candidates and making the dialogue binary and rooting out all of the diversity within the pools of candidates is one of the very effective ways that they've done it for 250 years. There are people who've spent their whole lives studying politics, and so I'll leave it to them to talk about Mark's politics, to tell you whether or not it's even possible for us to vote someone like him into office. The thing that interests me most about Mark is not his politics, but his heart. Mark and I talked for the first time a little over a month ago, and it didn't get off to a great start. It was a stressful time for both of us, and Zoom wasn't working, and so we wasted a lot of time on a busy day trying to figure that out. We were both feeling worn down by the conversations we were having both personally and professionally about racism, 
I got off the phone with Mark after that first call, feeling pretty down, like I just opened Pandora's box and had no idea what to do with it. But the next day, Mark called me again. We talked for an hour, not for an interview, just to talk about how life was going. And we had a totally different conversation. We talked through the assumptions we'd both brought to the previous conversation. How it was hard sometimes to step outside of our own way of thinking and be open to something new. At this point, I've spent close to five hours on the phone with Mark over the course of a number of conversations. In that time, we've done the work of relational repair. We've been honest with each other about the baggage we both have when it comes to our country's history. We've said we're sorry and asked for forgiveness. We've thanked each other for taking the time to talk. Those conversations leave me feeling hopeful. Maybe if two strangers can talk like that, then other people in our country can too. When I think about the kind of person I'd like to lead our country, I think about someone like Mark, someone who is not afraid of doing the hard work required to get better, someone who's spent his whole life learning to supercompensate, I'm learning a lot from Mark about humility and courage and forgiveness and grace. One of the things that gives me hope is when I remind myself of my place within creation. When I lived on the Navajo Nation for 11 years with my family, I did something almost every morning that my people have done for hundreds, even thousands of years rise up early in the morning, I would go outside, I would face the east, and I would greet the day and the morning sunrise with my prayers. And whenever you watch the sunrise, it's something beautiful. The clouds turn a certain color and on Easter morning or the, the day you have an early flight. It's nice to see the sunrise and be reminded of that beauty. And I always had appreciated sunrises in that way. But I found something the longer I lived there. And as I was watching the sunrise day after day, and then soon week after week, and soon month after month, and eventually year after year, I realized that it was speaking something much deeper into my heart. As I watched the flowers grow and the, the grass grow and the, the birds migrating and the animals moving north and south, depending on which way the sun was going, and as I watched the seasons change and the, the wind and the snowfall and the ice and the water and the spring and the seasons pass. And the more I stood there watching this dance, this creation, this picture being painted, this vase being shaped, this artwork being put together in front of me and even around me, I began to recognize that I'm not in control of this. I'm a part of it. I'm watching it happen, but I can't make the sunrise any earlier. I can't make it stay up any later. I can't cause the seasons to come quicker. I am not in control. And it's creator who put all of these things in place. It's creator who set these things in motion. And it is my joy and even my privilege to witness these things and to observe them and to stand there and to even be a part of it. But I cannot control it. At first, that feeling is kind of nerve-wracking because Western culture is all about making sure that you remain in control. But the longer I watch the sunrise day after day, month after month, week after week, year after year, 
the more I became more and more comfortable with this fact that I was not in control. And once I was able to give up that need to control everything around me, it allowed me actually to take much better responsibility of things that I could have some control over and to learn to be more at peace with things that were seemingly outside of my control. As I watch what's going on right now with the pandemic, with this racial injustice, with our nation and the way it's headed, one of the things that centers me, that gives me peace and even offers me hope is when I remind myself that I'm not in control. Not that things are out of control, I believe creator is in control, but that I'm not in control of all this. And I live in DC now, which is kind of an urban jungle, and so I can't see the sunrise nearly as easily here as I could back on the reservation. So one of the things I've taken to doing since I moved to DC is I will walk around our neighborhoods and I will stop and look and appreciate the beauty of flowers. We get a lot of rain here in DC and flowers bloom and there's always different seasons of different flowers coming up. And I allow myself to stop and be captivated by the beauty of flowers and remind myself that no matter what's going on, these flowers are still here, they're still blooming, they're beautiful, and they're a reminder again that I'm not in control. And that actually gives me peace rather than anxiety. The lesson that I learned, I, I tell people, one of the most important spiritual disciplines I've ever had in my life was for the 11 years we lived on the reservation of watching the sunrise almost every morning. And it's something I continue to try to do now. I don't do it with the sunrise, but to put myself in a place to remember that I'm not in control. And when I do that, I have much less anxiety. And when I do it long enough, I'm actually able to have hope. That's a pretty beautiful place to end. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mark. This conversation has just been such a gift to me. And I have enjoyed getting to know you a little bit in these conversations. Talking to you gives me hope in a time when it's very hard to find hope. So thank you for all of the beautiful work that you're doing. You're very welcome. It's been a, a pleasure to be with you, Laura. I've enjoyed our conversations as well. And uh, I hope that we'll be able to walk in beauty and that as a nation, we will learn how to walk in beauty together. I wonder if maybe that super compensation curve can help us as a country. If we're going to get better relationally, we're going to have to do some hard work. Initially, there'll be some tearing down of the previous muscle fibers. Our country's central nervous system will take a hit. We'll need to find some way to recover, to care for ourselves and each other well as we repair our hearts and our histories. And then we need to have that next hard conversation to do the next right thing and then recover again it's not an easy way to live, but easy is not the goal. Better is the goal. I want to close today, not with my words, but the words of my husband's sister, Hillary Davis, who spent more than a decade working with native populations and who introduced me to Mark. Here's what Hillary says. As a white person and a person of Christian heritage, listening to Mark speak is never exactly a pleasant experience. As he names hard truths that seem like they must be exaggerations, it's natural to have a knee-jerk response and want to check out. I encourage any of you listening to be patient with your defensive feelings, to work through them, 
and to take time to digest Mark's words. Here's why. I have been working alongside Mark for the last 10 years to bring healing and restoration to Native American students. In this journey we've shared, I've watched over and over again as students have felt freed by Mark's words. They will often say things like, he put into words something I always felt, but no one ever taught me about the history of our people. I don't feel crazy anymore for how depressed I feel. While a white person listening to Mark may feel hit with a ton of bricks, a native person feels lighter, more connected, like finally someone is speaking their truth out loud. Something I've learned from native people is that relationships take a long time and they last longer than my lifetime. My relationship with Mark is personal and it extends back to what happened between our ancestors as well as forward to what will happen between our grandchildren. And one thing I appreciate about Mark is that while we have our disagreements and even hurt one another in conversations about race and politics, he always stays in the conversation. He is always honest, and he takes honest feedback and considers it thoughtfully. So I encourage you to do the same. Take what Mark has to say and give it your most honest think. Stay in that conversation with him. It's okay if it takes a few years. What he shares comes from his heart, but it also comes from the hearts of those who can't or don't speak so loudly his ancestors, his land, and perhaps even the spirit. If you found today's episode meaningful, I hope you'll subscribe wherever you listen and share it with a friend. If you listen on iTunes or another platform that allows you to rate and review, leaving a quick note about what you appreciate about the show helps others find us and moves us a little closer to being able to make this work sustainable, not just now, but in the future. Before I go, I want to thank Imagine Mindfulness for becoming a supporter of Shelter in Place. If you're looking for a way to reduce stress, anxiety, and pain, Imagine Mindfulness is currently offering an eight-week live online mindfulness-based stress reduction program for a reduced price of just $50. MBSR is a scientifically proven, evidence-based program to reduce stress, anxiety, depression, and pain while improving awareness, clarity, and concentration. Use the promo code SHELTER when you sign up at imaginemindfulness.com to register and to support this show. The Shelter in Place music was created by Chase Horseman at Reactor Productions. Tamara Kemsley is our associate producer. Nate Davis is our creative director. And Sarah Edgel is our design director. As always, I'll be taking Sunday off because we can all use a Sabbath. Until Monday, this is Shelter in Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis.